Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because I have with me Dr. Rachel Stevens to tell us all about her book titled Hidden in Plain Sight, Concealing Enslavement in American Visual Culture, published by the University of Arkansas Press in 2023. This book does really cool things and also is gorgeous, which is a very nice plus, um, but helps us understand and explain something not so gorgeous in terms of what its intent is. Um, It helps us understand how different sides of debate around slavery in the United States leading up to the American Civil War used visual messages, photography, paintings, all sorts of things, to further their arguments for and against slavery. Um, This book does a fascinating job of dissecting all of that, walking us through examples, um, helping us understand some of the impacts and long-term implications. So Rachel, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that beautiful summary. I hope I did it justice. The good thing is that from now on, you're the one talking about the book. Starting with, please, an introduction of yourself, and if you don't mind, the sort of backstory. How did you come to write this? Yeah, sure, sure thing. I am an associate professor of art history at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, and I've been here for about 10 years. My research, as you see, focuses on the art of the U.S. South, primarily antebellum period and early 19th century. And I guess I've long studied portraits and oil paintings, but this project sort of took me, as you see, across all different uh, forms of media. So I've long been interested in representation and race and slavery, especially with this project. But um, the antebellum South is is an interest of mine and that stems from growing up in Nashville, Tennessee and not learning about the artwork that was around me. And so when I started trying to figure out the history of art in Tennessee, I was fascinated. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. Uh, I don't think this art is generally taught that much, even outside of the American South. So it seems like a pretty big contribution, um, regardless of where one grew up and is located, though I imagine particularly if you're used to seeing these things, you might be like, hang on, what's happening here? Than someone who's maybe never seen them before. Um, So can you give us a bit of context, especially for those who have maybe not as familiar with this debate? What images were pro-slavery sympathizers trying to counter? Yeah, sure. Um, So yes, that is sort of the basic premise of, of the book that I lay out right at the beginning is that these works of Southern art and visual culture were created specifically in response to abolitionist works. So by the 1830s, the abolitionist movement had tapped into the idea that visually representing slavery would be a very powerful way to spread their message. And um, they started in the 1830s creating mostly prints and illustrations of images of the violence of enslavement. They primarily focused on um, three 
three tropes, including images of slave trade or auction, which often included um, the separation of families and the separation of mothers from babies was a prominent category that they they drew on. And they also showed a lot of scenes of whipping or flogging. So it's awful stuff that, that it, it's incredibly violent. And they use this to expose precisely that, which is the violence of enslavement. They started uh, mailing these images, which often accompanied tracts and treatises and flyers and other um, bits about the truth of enslavement to the South. And I think it's when they started sending them across the South that the um, pro-slavery sympathizers felt they needed to respond. The visuals were so powerful and so violent that Southerners began to try to find, I I say Southerners, I should say pro-slavery Southerners or pro-slavery sympathizers started to try to figure out how they could likewise use imagery to counter those scenes of violence. And the major takeaway here is that they completely deny violence. There's never, I, I don't, I can't remember ever seeing a scene of um, violence against an enslaved person in a, in a Southern work of art uh, or in a pro-slavery work of art, which I think makes perfect sense. But it also sort of shows you that they were sort of producing these works in response, like as a reaction to the abolitionist imagery. There's one other sort of piece of this that aligns um, chronologically, which is the shift in the ways that slavery was talked about in the South. So, of course, before the 1830s, lots of people in the South discussed the institution itself as a necessary evil. And after the abolitionist movement ramped up in the 1830s, that switched over to be considered a positive good. And this was all part of this justification for for keeping the institution of slavery in the South. And the visual culture that I go on to try to dissect is all in this conversation, this justification of of the the institution. Mm. No, thank you for tracing, helping us understand that shift um, and kind of what the wider context of this is, because otherwise it wouldn't make a lot of sense um, as it is very reactionary. Um, in the sort of earlier part of the book, you talk about a, a very striking absence, really, that a lot of this art early on just doesn't show slaves, not even just doesn't show violence, but just doesn't show enslaved people. Um But then that changes, sort of similarly to what you've just described in the shift in how discussions of slavery are um, conducted. So can you walk us through on the visual side, why, when, and with what effect did the visual messages of this conversation move from, oh, it's not a problem because you literally cannot see them, to including enslaved people in paintings in ways that they thought helped their argument? Yeah, it's it is actually pretty difficult to say exactly when this happened because it's it's so very piecemeal and you're right it's it is reactionary but it's it's kind of hard to pin down exactly what they're reacting to but generally you do see that shift and you do see more and more enslaved people begin to appear in artwork 
in lots of different ways during and after the 1830s. And I do think it has a lot, if not everything, to do with that shift in trying to represent enslavement as a positive good. And by and how do you do that? Well, I don't think they were, you know, they ever really tapped into how it's possible, probably because it's really not possible to, <laughs> to justify slavery. But in attempting to do that, um, they start showing and including enslaved people in um, often in tangential ways and sometimes not, but usually in um, really positive ways to help underscore those justifications of, of enslaved people being satisfied and happy in their situation and um, the whole institution being represented as as helpful for everybody. So that starts to occur in the 1830s, but there's there's artwork that does include enslaved people before that, and there's lots of artwork that completely omits the institution after that. So again, it's this really sort of scattershot and piecemeal story, and that's partly, I, I think, because the pro-slavery movement was never really organized. They threw everything they could at it in trying to make something stick or make it make sense. And that certainly is true of the rhetoric, but the artwork follows that that same idea. Could you maybe introduce us to one or two examples of what this looked like? Um, sure. Let me think about that for just a second. Let's see. What I, what I attempted to do in chapter one is to lay out the various ways that um, pro-slavery artwork attempted those justifications. And so I tried to categorize it to, to try to make the story make a little bit of sense. And so the, the various themes include everything from, like I said, works that um, show enslaved people as happy and or productive um, to images that included enslaved people as um, part of the family. Oftentimes, enslavers would refer to the people they enslaved as their Black family, or they would refer to their family Black and white to try to propel this idea that it was a a familial institution that the plantation um, that they all lived on together was a one big happy family. So the most beautiful example, in my opinion, of a work that represents that idea is um, this multi-figure silhouette that's in the book that's by a French artist named um, Edouard. And um, the silhouette represents, um, you know, it's black paper cutouts in profile, full figure bodies splayed across what is meant to be their uh, look to look like their parlor in Natchez, Mississippi. It's the young family, but it includes two enslaved people in the midst of this very well-dressed um, high style antebellum um, portrait. And anyway, there's lots of layers of meaning you can peel back from that, but including enslaved people in this group um, portrait I think is meant to propel this idea that slavery is all natural and it's all in the family and everyone's in it together. And the sort of uniformity of that black paper, um, I think helps propel that idea. Mm. 
Yeah, that was a really striking example in the book. Um, I think this is perhaps a good moment to remind listeners that this book is really visual. I mean, it's a massive, gorgeous coffee table book sort of thing. So you can see these examples, Rachel, that you're telling us about in the book in a lot of detail. So anyone who's kind of like, wait, I don't know what that looks like, or, oh, I'm intrigued, like, pick up the book. It's got, it doesn't just talk about the examples, it really shows them. Um, And so I'd love to ask you kind of about one piece of that. Uh, You mentioned right at the beginning, kind of, you came from working with particular mediums, and this book really expands to cover a number of them. And in these themes you've just mentioned to us, to what extent were these sort of ideal depictions of someone who's happy despite being enslaved or productive, etc.? Were they similar across mediums? So, for example, would you see the same sort of trope of a happy enslaved person in a painting and a photograph? Or did was there differences across the mediums? Like, how does that play into this? Oh, man, that's a brilliant question. And I'll tell you why. But I, I did want to say thanks for saying or or for complimenting the visual nature of the book, the University of Arkansas Press, um, I think really recognized that in order to understand the story, we had to see the details of the images. And oftentimes they're reproduced bigger in the book than they are even in person. Lots of these are tiny little images in various forms. I wondered about that. Oh, I know. And so I did include dimensions. So if you really want to see how big it is, their dimensions are included, you know, in tiny, tiny um, headings below the images. But yeah, like so many of them, there's, I included several examples of say currency or little designs on envelopes that are just tiny in person that they really were able to exploit and explode in the book um, in full color. And so I, um, I loved that they were willing and able to do that to make such a big book. Yeah, it's heavy. It's not something you're going to take on the airplane with you. But I think the story is important enough that um, they were, they were, uh, they saw to it that they produced the images in color and made them big and, and able to be seen. So anyway, I was really grateful for that. But about the mediums, um, you know, when I was writing the book, I couldn't quite, it took me a long time to figure out how to organize it. Because it's a complicated story. And I thought maybe chronological might make sense at one point, I thought maybe, um, flipping back and forth from abolitionist images to pro-slavery images that answered them might make sense. Ultimately, you know, it's it's a it's a thematic book, and each each chapter takes a different theme that I sort of imagined under the auspices of the big theme of concealment. But I at, at one point I had it organized by medium because it is it is quite different the ways that slavery was approached based on medium. And it's sort of the nature of, of the medium that helps define that and helps determine that. But um, it was quite different from painting to photograph to sculpture to print to whatever. And those little nuances were quite interesting to me as an art historian. So for example, the place where we see the most, um, overt images of slavery, and this goes for abolitionists and, and pro-slavery sympathizers, is in the, 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 the so-called cheaper mediums. So things that were less expensive and quicker to produce, where stakes were maybe a bit lower, is the place where we see a lot of those strongest visual messages. And those are in prints, like I mentioned, which could be a fine engraving and certainly 
the abolitionist movement was producing quick, cheap prints, but also really large, fine engravings that um, were put up for purchase to support the abolitionist movement. The same thing occurred um, in the pro-slavery side, um, but for the most part, quick is it if it's illustrations or watercolors or prints. Those are where I could find the strongest messages and the most kind of easily readable forms in terms of where they stood and what what the political message was. And the other media are more subtle, um, particularly paintings. Oil on canvas paintings often do not speak to the slavery debate on either side. There are certainly exceptions to this, but I think that if you're a painter in 19th century America, um, for the most part, from what I saw, they are often willing to put politics aside and they often do not speak about um, where they stand in politics. And I think that's because they need commissions and are just about willing to paint for whomever might hire them. I saw plenty of examples across my study of um, secretly abolitionist Northerners willing to come down and um, produce portraits for enslavers and live on plantations and even benefit from enslaved labor while they were doing that. Um, so anyway, paintings, the stakes are higher, the materials are more expensive, and we often see the most subtle messages in those. And then photography, of course, is, you know, the medium is particular to its own nature. And in the height of this movement, the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, you couldn't really capture movement on um, in, in, in photography. And so... Um, abolitionist photography and pro-slavery photography alike was usually a form of portraiture, sitters posing for the camera. And this takes lots of different forms. But my chapter five is about specifically photographs of enslaved women. And this was a whole trope and a very common thing that enslavers would have women that they enslaved. Often these were the nannies of their young children um, pose for the camera and go sit, go sit um, for portraits. So the yeah, the uh, uh, sculpture also. There's very few uh, pre pre Civil War sculptures that approach the topic of slavery, and um, I think that's because the the stakes were so high, and they got especially high in terms of finances when you are producing um, sculpture and painting because those are the most expensive. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And also, maybe even the idea that they're meant to last longer. So speaking to a current political debate, maybe would feel odd. That's true. And then I think no one, you know, they couldn't see into the future. They didn't know what was happened. They many people were calling for the Civil War for or, or um, predicting it for decades. But you're right, there was such a period of turmoil. Um, yeah, it makes sense that they wouldn't want to commit that to such a permanent medium. Yeah, exactly. I, I can I can imagine someone being like, no, but then it'll be out of date, right? <laughs> you don't want to do that with something as expensive as a sculpture. I know. Yeah. Um, you mentioned portraits just now, family portraits. And of course, you mentioned earlier that that was kind of one of the expertises you were coming from into this book. So could you tell us a bit more about how family portraits were used to promote pro-slavery sentiments? And I'm particularly curious about whether the using family portraits in this way changed at all over the time period? That's a great question. That um, 
I didn't directly address in my book, but I did in some tangential ways. And um, if you have visited a plantation house in the U.S. South, you have probably seen many portraits of um, single oil on canvas um, members of the fam of the family of enslavers. So the most common form of of traditional fine art in these large enslaving families in the antebellum South were standalone portraits of the enslaver and his family. I think that this is perhaps maybe the safest way for someone to represent themselves in art and can speak to all of these levels of power and racial dynamics without directly doing so. And there, you know, it's easy for generations that come after that to continue to cherish these family portraits um, because they don't directly address the idea of, say, where the money came from for that portrait or how they were able to afford such a fine home with such fine art um, inside it. But I think at the heart of those portraits, we have to consider um, not only how the person, the sitter and his family were engaged with enslavement. But um, I think we have to consider enslaved people almost as part of those portraits because enslaved people were operating not in separation from those people. In fact, the, one of the artists that I've considered in depth um, elsewhere is named Ralph E.W. Earl, and he worked in Andrew Jackson's White House, and he also worked in Jackson's home in Nashville, and he was actually Jackson, Andrew Jackson's personal portraitist. But I know, based on learning about him and reading his letters and learning about his engagement with Jackson, um, enslaved people were assisting, you know, his every moment um, in the studio, and they were just, they were around. So not only were they responsible for the wealth that Jackson generated to be able to afford a full-time portraitist, but they're directly implicated in the artwork. And that's easy to forget and easy to ignore, but I think it's a critical part of the story. And I think having these portraits on the walls of Southern homes just speaks to that, those hierarchies, those racial hierarchies and power without maybe directly doing so, but certainly the implication is there. Hmm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and perhaps continuing on that topic, um, but in a very sort of pointed way, a particular example, would you please talk us through the painting that's on the cover of the book and explain why you decided to make this quite literally the first thing someone sees? Oh, yeah, it's such a um, powerful portrait. And we could do, you know, a whole podcast on the portrait itself and its story, but it's actually not really my story to tell. And it's not, uh, I, um, I include it here because it is just the perfect example of the ways that artwork and the idea of concealment are so integrated and implicated together in this period. Um, so it's Belazare and the Fry Children is the name that's now been given to that portrait. And I think it's an 1837 portrait of um, an enslaved 14-year-old boy named Belazare and three children of the Fry family who were the enslavers of Belazare. Belazare is an enslaved um, boy. 
and it's a unique portrait. Um, we very rarely see such a, a realistic um, portrait of an enslaved person in the antebellum South, especially included in um, a family portrait of, of the white enslavers children. So it's large and it's very well done and it's beautiful. But for many, many years, Belazare was painted over. So for a long time, at first glance, the painting only included the Fry children. So at some point, and conservators think um, about 1900 or so, Belazare was masked. He was painted over to where it just looked like a landscaped background that that is still included in the work, um, but he sort of was subsumed by that in the cover-up. So um, only recently what in cleaning was he sort of rediscovered and um, uncovered, and it was a collector of African-American art in Louisiana named Jeremy Simeon who found out about the painting, found out that it had been deaccessioned by the New Orleans Museum of Art and put up for sale and sold by auction. And he tracked it down um, after a dogged search, um, was able to acquire the painting from the person that had purchased it at auction, from what I understand, and had it cleaned and um, conserved and um, it was, I, I found out about it, not from him, but from a 2019 New Orleans Museum of Art exhibition. Now, it had long been the accession before that, like in the 90s, I think. But they, uh, um, an exhibition they hosted in 2019 called Inventing Acadia um, mentioned it and showed the picture of it pre-cleaning, but they could not find it at that time. Anyway, fast forward, Jeremy Simeon found it. I got wind of it. I contacted him. He had hired a researcher, an African-American genealogist named Katie Shannon, um, to try to figure out the story. And it was Katie Shannon that was able to identify Belazare and track him through and find out where he had lived, which was mainly as a domestic enslaved person in New Orleans. And then after his enslaver passed away, he was sold to... Um, down the bayou, as they say, to um, Evergreen Plantation, where he worked as a field laborer. Unfortunately, he is not able to be tracked into emancipation. Um, But fast forward the story to Jeremy Simeon. He recently sold the painting to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And um, this all happened after um, I had Um, written about it in my book just only recently. And I think just last month it went on display at the Met. They had it reframed and retitled to where Belazare is named and discussed um, in the wall label. And I'm just so, um, I'm so happy that I'm so satisfied that the Met was able to acquire it, that Belazare and his name and likeness are on the walls of one of the premier museums in the U.S. And it sort of feels really gratifying to me that this this story of concealment and cover-up that I found so intriguing, um, you know, has, has, you know, broad implications and validity and is probably significant for us to to consider. At least I would argue that. 
And I can't wait to go to the Met in January to see the painting again and see it in the midst of the American collection there. But I've got to say, I did not select the painting for the cover. I, um, I had a very good design team and Daniel Bertolotto is the designer at the University of Arkansas Press who, who read the book and who did the design and who selected that painting for the cover because he thought it just told the story perfectly. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, kudos to him. Um, but thank you for taking us through the story. And of course, it was in, it is in the book, right? It's not just on the cover. Oh, um, it is in the book. Yes. Yeah. No, it's a very, I, I can see why he chose it, right? It does put together many of the themes um, and threads in the book in one visual message. Um, I'd like to ask you about a different part of the book, though, if you don't mind us moving to there. Um, there's Throughout the book, you talk about different mediums, um, you talk about different sort of themes in the messages and how they change. You also talk about, you've mentioned it a little bit already, kind of how these messages come to be, right? How is, are these paintings actually produced and commissioned and the sort of, not just the end product, but the process as well. So I'd love to ask you um, a little bit about that from chapter five. You focus on a, a, an artist that I'm not going to be able to pronounce. So let's try it. Adalbert Volk. Sounds good to me. Cool. Let's go with that. How does tracing his career, um, which is kind of one of the main bits of chapter five, how does that help us understand the conditions in which this was created? Can we talk a bit more about the behind the scenes side? Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk more about Volk because nobody knows this guy. He's not, he's not well known at all. And perhaps you could argue he shouldn't be. <clears throat> but I did like sort of using chapter five to do a deep dive into Volk's work as a case study, because I think it did, as you say, really uncover a really interesting piece and illustrate um, how the artwork had these broader implications and how specifically the theme of secrecy um, appeared really across my story. And so uh, um, I kept seeing things being covered up, but things being kept hush-hush or secrets being kept. And that took lots of different forms. Everything from a husband writing to his wife to ask her to destroy the letter or, you know, just lots of different things. But um, I found in Valk's work a really interesting example of the ways that secrecy with regard to slavery um, took visual form. And it's it's specifically important for Volk because he is working in during the Civil War in Baltimore. So he's working in Union-controlled territory as a pro-Confederacy person. So he actually was doing illegal work. So it was actually crucial for him um, that he keep it a secret. But it spoke to me of just how um, the the theme of secrecy played out visually. So in specific, Volk was a German dentist engraver in Baltimore. And he was, um, he, he was advanced in age at the time of the Civil War. So he wasn't going to volunteer service. So what he did instead was everything in his power to support the Confederacy from his dentist office in Baltimore. And there's lots of secrets, so which made the story hard to get at. And there's lots of, um, 
lies on behalf of Valk. I mean, I just think he he spread tall tales a lot. And so that made the story hard to track down. But basically, he was creating these very anti-slavery, pro-Confederacy, anti-abolitionist, incredibly vehement images across the years of the Civil War. And he was doing so under pseudonym, by private order, um, and under the cover of night, as he claimed, he was producing these things in his basement at night after his day's labor as a dentist. He also did other various things like smuggle medicines to the Confederacy and um, offer safe haven to Confederates in Baltimore and lots of things. But the artwork that he created, although it's 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 kind of hard to look at, it's um, it's angry and biting and it's, it's line engraving. Um, but it, um, not only did all of those things, but it was really interesting to me, the ways he was responding to national art with these very pro-slavery, pro-Confederate messages. So he was, um, he said things, you know, he made reference references, for example, to Thomas Nast, who was an abolitionist, very well-known printmaker, um, so he would directly respond to Nass work. He also did this to other sort of national American artists well-known in the period, everybody from David Gilmore Blythe to Emanuel Leutze, even to Paul Revere, and um, kind of helping to spread a pro-Confederate message in artwork um, in secrecy. So it's, it's detailed and it's hard to get at, but I think it's an important part of the story because I was able to really do a deep dive into his work and to show how, um, how important it was to him and how strongly he felt about his messages. At the same time, he had to keep the entire enterprise completely under wraps. Hmm. Yeah, no, that was a really interesting thing to read, to see the different layers of what was happening. Um, and in some ways, I actually see a lot of... Uh, commonalities between that part of the book and a section where you discuss the extent to which we can understand enslaved people um, being depicted, often in photographs, as having any agency, um, which is also something that requires unpicking and looking at layers and understanding secrecy. So can you maybe walk us through this section of the book? Sure. I actually love that idea of those uh, those those concepts being parallel. I hadn't really thought about that before, but I do love it. Um, yeah, that's one thing I sort of struggled with throughout the whole project. So much of it is about the ways that the humanity of enslaved people was stifled in these works, um, about how pro-slavery imagery attempted to... Um, spread lies about enslaved people uh, and cover up reality. And so much of it, the vast majority of the work does not picture specific enslaved people, but rather represents the institution more generally um, through various stereotypes and, and um, kind of embodied ideas. But with the photographs um, that I mentioned in chapter five, of enslaved women, you do have an opportunity to, A, attempt to identify specific enslaved people, and B, um, to celebrate the identity, individuality, and humanity of that person, even if you don't know who they are. So there are lots of layers here, too. Um, This was the most difficult chapter to write because, for me, 
because um, it took a lot of thinking through sort of the theory of photography to unpack it a little bit. Um, and like I said, the, the genealogy part um, in terms of tracking the identity of enslaved people is a very difficult task. And it's not something I'm expert at, but I was able to rely on lots of people who are and who have done that type of work. Um, but basically what I saw with these images, and so I started seeing photograph after photograph of enslaved women holding white babies in their laps. And those babies were the children of their enslavers. And so this is by far the largest body of like subset of photographs of enslaved people that exists. And I just started wondering why, why was this a trope? Um, why did the enslaver um, rely on this idea over and over again? Um, it happened across the antebellum South, across the history of photography. And um, it is one of the rare sort of ideas you see, you see being really picked up across the region and across the, the period. So um, ultimately I, I think of these as pro-slavery icons leading to the idea or encouraging the idea that slavery is part of the family. Like I was talking about earlier, if this is an ambrotype or a daguerreotype, um, it would be, you know, a little image that would be part of a suite of images of the family that would be displayed on say the mantle of the fireplace in the family parlor. So, you know, these aren't things that went into a museum per se, but the, um, anybody, the parlor is, is kind of a public place, at least among a certain class and a certain race in antebellum, in the antebellum South. And so sit, sitting there on the mantelpiece, the mantle place, they would, I think, promote the idea that enslavement again is, is, um, part of the family at this plantation, um, that it's a natural form and this sort of pseudo mother and child image where the baby looks very comfortable in her arms, I think helps feed into those ideas. And it makes sense that the baby would feel comfortable in her arms because these women were charged with taking care of those babies oftentimes. And there's probably something practical to that as well, that perhaps the baby would sit still because the baby was used to being in the arms of that person. Um, but um, I think we have to remember that those women were on the job in the photograph. They were um, being forced to sit before the camera as part of their duties of, as an enslaved person in the period. Um, that they didn't choose to sit for that photograph and um, that, that it is propaganda, I believe. At the same time, when you can get the identity of the woman, when you can um, respect the look of displeasure on her face as an act of agency, and um, when you can celebrate just the fact that we have a visual record of her, to me, these works are, because of those ideas, like incredibly powerful. No, very much so. And I think that that combination of the kind of political message, also the practicalities of, I mean, looking at the examples in the book, these are really small babies a lot of the time. So like they have to sit on someone because some of them <laughs> can't sit up straight, right? And like that's a real factor, especially if you're looking at old photography where like it only works if you sit still, right? So I think the combination of these things is 
we can't split them up if that makes sense um and then you do kind of to me it makes me even more wonder like who set this photograph up and why um because surely one option is you just don't try and take a photo of a wriggly baby until they're bigger right but there's a reason they're not doing that I know I have a two-year-old son and there's no way he would sit still for a photograph for 60 seconds that would be required so it's it's kind of remarkable in lots of ways um but and that to me does speak to the closeness at least the amount of time spent between that woman and that child which helps complicate the whole story the whole complicated story of slavery but um well yeah, I think there's also a lot speaks, to it. speaks to the politics of wanting to have that photograph like you really have to want it to organize it with all those levels so why do you want it so badly right that to me is just such an interesting question kind of once you've walked us through all these layers um and does i mean i can understand why it would be tricky to structure this because like well how how do we tell the story there's so many different things going on um and in some ways to me it only gets more complicated as the book goes further chronologically because the reaction, the reactionary nature of it that we discussed earlier sort of in some ways makes sense, right? If there's a political campaign with two very distinct sides and they're really trying to convince each other, then that they both have visual messages makes sense to me. But obviously then there is a war and there is a pretty definitive end to the war. So what then happens to the visual messages of the side that loses in some ways becomes an even more complicated question, at least to me. So can you help us understand like what actually happened to these paintings? If you saw some of them as a kid, then they didn't just get destroyed. Like what happens to these paintings and how are they interpreted? I know this is such an important part of the story and I'm glad you're asking me about it. Um, well, so a lot of things didn't get destroyed, but obviously not everything. And the things that remain, you know, are continued to be upheld for generations. And the, the fascinating thing to me about the whole antebellum story that I unpacked was that the visual themes that were created in the antebellum period just kept being produced. So before the Civil War, I think they're doing it to try to justify the institution. So the, the vehemence of the work before the war is all an attempt to maintain their economic hold, which, which relies on slavery. Obviously, post-war that changes. Enslaved people are emancipated. Um, the union is brought back together. Um, but the visuals stayed the same, but it was a little bit of the mes messaging that shifted. So a lot of things went dormant during Reconstruction. You know, until about 1877, Southerners were, you know, forced to pretty much be quiet. But after Reconstruction ended and federal troops withdrew from the South and the South was gaining more national political control, all of those ideas came back with a vengeance and started to be recycled. But now, rather than having to justify an institution that no longer existed, Southerners were twisting the story that ultimately becomes the lore of the lost cause. And so 
the idea that the war and the Confederate attempt was valiant and um, that enslaved people were loyal and that Confederate soldiers and the things they fought for and the ways they fought were chivalrous. They can draw those pre-Civil War themes that I talked about out to show enslaved people as happy, not to justify the institution, but to describe them as loyal. And enslaved people need to be loyal in the story in order for the Old South to be shown as um, in a positive light. And so the um, sort of romanticization of slavery draws on all those earlier themes, but it's just the rhetoric that shifts a little bit. And um, I was I was just so drawn into the story, partly because of that idea, because in the United States, we all know the ways in which the plantation South is idealized and romanticized. You can go on the internet today and buy a beautiful painting that makes the old South look good in a variety of ways being produced now. Things have been, have been produced in the 19th century, and it's this sort of gone with the wind effect, if you will. Um, so I was just so curious to see that it wasn't actually in the wake of the Civil War um, when that that sort of visual idea of the lost cause, um, it didn't come out of a post-war period. It came out of this pre-war justification. And so this continuum is very clear, really from the early 19th century, if not before, um, that continues really today. Mm. So given that length, um, the pre-war and the continuity, to what extent do you think that the pro-slavery visual culture would be considered by the proponents of it to be successful, to have achieved what they wanted? Oh, man, that's, I think that's very important. And it's hard to quantify. But I think that because those messages have seeped into the national consciousness, both in the late 19th century and, and continuing, doesn't that just say that those visual developments were incredibly successful. They did what they sought to do. Well, they didn't keep slavery around, but they did somehow twist the story to where generations of Americans thought of enslavement and the period of um, the plantation antebellum South as a happy and productive and beneficial period. Mm. Unfortunately, I think the continuity in and of itself kind of speaks to that. Um, We have then come up all the way very much to the present day and perhaps even the future on this particular topic. Um, But of course, the book is done. (laughs) The book is out. People can go um, lift up. I admit it is a heavy book, uh, but people can go get it. So is there anything that you might be working on now or next, given that the book is done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us? (laughs) Sure. I mean, books take me anyway, years to write. So it's a bit of a premature preview, but um, I'd love to put the ideas I'm working on out there just in case anyone um, knows things they could share Mm. with me or wants to discuss further. So it's actually um, annoyingly a couple of different projects that I have going, um, both book projects, but um, I think you'll see how they've both developed directly out of the things I was trying to wrangle in Hidden in Plain Sight. So um, 
one of the thing one of one of the topics is this idea that um confederate monuments and i just barely touch on these in the in the book but um of course this is there there's a lot of confederate monuments that develop out of out of all that lost cause um, mythology that i was talking about and they're usually talked about here and now in the wake of black lives matter movement um as something that was intended to cause harm to the african-american community as as um works that were um an intimidation factor, a symbol of white supremacy, and a celebration of something that was a falsehood. But they're not usually discussed as um, a reaction to the agency of formerly enslaved people upon emancipation, their enactment of citizenship, and their um, ability to be in public places as free citizens now, the appearance of formerly enslaved people, and I was looking specifically at the environment of Richmond, Virginia, when I first started this project. I think I'll expand it from there. But for example, in Richmond, enslaved people were having Emancipation Day parties on the state capitol grounds. Um, immediately in the wake of the end of the Civil War. That was a place that was formerly off limits to enslaved people under enslavement. So they were parading publicly, they were celebrating freedom and citizenship, and the former Confederates there surrounding them were incredibly upset by the flip in racial dynamics. And I believe that the whole... Um, development of lost cause artwork in which I include the monuments and I think about the public landscape, but I think about two-dimensional works as well in the same realm grows out of this anger and resentment towards African-American freedom. So I'm looking at that and, you know, kind of across the landscape, but um, thinking we should sort of credit the emancipated people in more specific ways than the scholarship is currently doing. So, Alongside those lines and a, another kind of specific geographic project I'm looking at is I'm going back to Nashville, Tennessee specifically, and thinking about a few different case studies um, and thinking about the way, uh, like paintings from the antebellum period and from the Civil War and after um, that specifically implicate enslaved people, even though they're not pictured. So this is um, going back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about those portraits, but I've selected a few different portraits of like portraits of families from Nashville, a portrait of Andrew Jackson on his um, farm um, and thinking about what is shown, but more importantly, what's not shown. So in a portrait of Andrew Jackson on his plantation, it shows rolling hills and it shows the Hermitage um, grand home itself, but it doesn't show the enslaved people that were working there the indigenous people that were removed from that land and others. So rereading portraits to think about how people of color were implicated in them, even when they're not pictured is something I'm also trying to do. Mm. Very intriguing projects. Thank you for the preview. Um, And of course, while you are working on both of those, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again titled Hidden in Plain Sight, Concealing Enslavement in American Visual Culture, published by the University of Arkansas Press in 2023. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me, Miranda.